please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26 as we continue studying through the book of Isaiah. We'll be looking at chapter 26 in its entirety and the first verse of chapter 27 because it kind of fits with 26 a lot better than it does with with 27. And so before we go to his word, as usual, let us go to him in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we recognize it as the source of truth for our lives, what we ought to believe about you and how we ought to act and how we ought to serve you. There are many other sources of so-called truth that we could use that would tell us how we ought to believe and how we ought to behave. And so many times, Lord, we conflate them with your holy scriptures. And we mix them together and we add our own thoughts and our own truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take all of that out of the way, that you would flatten all of those obstacles, and that you would show us your word, that you would teach us, that you would correct our hearts and our minds where there's sin, and that you would lead us to the truth that is found here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since I read through this passage, it reminded me of when I was in high school, when I was a kid, and I used to, there was this room in our building, and I'm sure most of you all had this room in your building as well, in your school building, and it was like the room where the kids that were in trouble all the time had to do school. And a lot of times it was called ISS or in-school suspension. In our school, it's called A-Room. It all, you know, it's whatever. It has a name. And it was like an in-school sort of suspension. They sat there all day. They didn't have to listen to teachers. They didn't have to go to their lockers and change classes. And so when I looked in there, sometimes I was like, you know, I think I really want to do that. I mean, it's it seems nice, right? They don't have to deal with any of the social exchanges that happen throughout the day. They were, and actually they were made to remain silent all day. They weren't even allowed to speak, which seemed like a real treat to me. Just to sit there and be quiet and do homework and read and, and do nothing. It didn't seem like punishment to me at all. It seemed like paradise. Of course, in order to get in there, you had to break the rules quite a bit and you had to become the type of student and person that I really didn't even want to become, even as a 16, 17 year old kid didn't want to do that they had to there was a particular stigma associated with them that kid was in ISS and in order to get into what I thought was paradise you had actually had to treat people badly you had to disrespect your your elders like your teachers and other adults and you had to never do your work and that trade-off really wasn't worth it for me in our text today there's this kind of tension as well Remember, Isaiah is being shown a vision of the future, and in today's passage, we're going to see the city of salvation that God has set up. We're going to see the city of the proud that God has destroyed, and then we're going to consider this idea, how long do we, the people of God, have to wait until this happens? How should we act until it does happen? And in this tension, and very much similar to Isaiah, 
The only difference is, of course, he looked forward to Jesus and we look back and see what Jesus has already done, but we still have this same tension. We're still waiting for that time. This kind of tension, I think, is front and center in the Christian experience, really. It's what we deal with daily, and I think this text is very good in helping us guard our hearts against seeing ISS, or in-school suspension, as paradise shows us that the lives that bring glory to the Lord and waiting on the Lord's justice, these things are good, and this is what we should long for. So as we consider this text, I want to look at it in three points. The future hope, the present reality, and then the redemption promise. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Isaiah chapter 26. We're reading it in its entirety. It goes along with verse 1 of chapter 27. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks upon the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it into the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of righteousness, of path of the righteous is level, for you make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. And if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so we, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. 
and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So again, just a little bit of a reminder here. This vision that Isaiah is seeing is concerning the future. And so we go back to chapter 24 and you kind of get this picture going forward. He knows what is in store then for the people of God. This redemptive promise. However, they are currently dealing with their present realities. They have Assyria... They have even in a distant future Babylon that Isaiah has already prophesied about. He knows about it even though the people can't really see it. And so Isaiah sees all of this. They're dealing with this very difficult time. This is the tension that really exists for us Christians throughout history. As we know the promises of God. Yet in many ways we only just see glimpses of them now. We hope for this future reality to occur when we're, when we're in this strong city that we read about. And the hope that we have isn't just a wish. And make sure we understand that when we as Christians use the word hope, we're not like hoping we'll get something, like we say like Christmas or something like that. We're not wishing something would happen. We know that they are going to happen. That is our hope. Our hope is built upon the integrity of the one who makes the promises. And who makes the promises? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Those promises are built upon His integrity. So we know they will occur. And this is why what we call as Christians, we have a a sure hope. This isn't just a wish that we have. We don't think this is going to happen. We know. But it doesn't make our life on this world any easier necessarily. So with that, let's go to the first point, our future hope, verses 1 and 2. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. So this idea of a strong city, it's not only strong because it's, or it's only strong because its walls are held up by the salvation of God. And again, this isn't some wishy-washy promise. This is a promise of God who says things and they happen. He speaks things into existence. And so this will happen. And look who are able to enter into the city. This righteous nation. This isn't about Israel. This is about the people of God. This isn't about the United States either. This is about the people, the multitude that were impossible to number of every tribe, tongue, and nation. These are the people of God that have no righteousness in and of themselves. The reason that they are called a righteous nation or in other places in Scripture, a chosen nation or a a royal priesthood, all of these things are attributed to those people of God because of what He did for them. They don't get to wear a medal that says, look at what I did. Their medal says, look at what Jesus did. And that's what he, and we've, we've finished that rundown of what God plans to do for the, for the nations. 
And of course, what did he, what was his judgment on all the nations? None of them were any good. So we're not talking about some righteous nation that exists out there. We're talking about these people that God has set aside for himself. And then how did he make them a righteous nation? He came himself in order that he might make atonement for their sins and therefore make them righteous. These are his people that he died for himself. And how does he care for his people? Verse 3. You keep in perfect peace, you, the Lord, He keeps us in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because He trusts in you. I think this is good for us. When, we, when our minds rest in Him, we are in perfect peace. The Hebrew there, perfect peace, is really, there's no word for perfect in Hebrew. It just says, whose mind is, or it says, you keep Him in peace, peace is what it says in the original language. There's a repetition there to remind us this is an important thing and a big thing. Colossians 3 tells us, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Set your minds on things above. These are the things that we should be concerning ourselves with because they give us this perfect peace. And we're called to trust in Him. Trust in the Lord, verse 4, forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. It's not that when we get to heaven, we're going to all of a sudden start trusting in our own righteousness. Look at me, we finally arrived. No, when we get to heaven, we're still trusting in the righteousness of the Lord. It's still His. We're familiar with other verses like this in Scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. We're never going to get to a point where we have our own understanding to lean on. Even when we're in this strong city, He will continue to make our path straight. Seek first His kingdom. All of these things will be added to you. When we trust in His promises, we're in perfect peace. Of course, one day we'll do that perfectly. We look forward to that day when we do that. But now, this is the primary struggle of the Christian life. We'll talk more about that in a minute. For now, look at this juxtaposition that you see here. You see this city of salvation that's strong. And then, verse 5, He has humbled the inhabitants of the height of the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it in the dust. It's so low, in fact, that look, the foot tramples it. And whose feet are they that trample it? The feet of the poor. The steps of the needy. This just shows us in Scriptures over and over, God desires a heart that realizes it can't save itself. That is always poor. That is always needy. Because it always needs Him. And it always lacks everything without Him. It's the one who... He's the one that gives us that heart of course and we we owe that to him the big here is to recognize that this is the deal that one day we will live in this ideal situation in glory with him isaiah looked forward to that day and he was glad all the old testament saints looked forward to that day they saw jesus and they were glad for it in fact again they have the exact same promises that we do they weren't looking towards anything else They were looking at the Lamb of God who was in the center of the city, just like us, 
Jesus was their foundation as well. Either way, Jesus Christ is the center of those promises. He's the center of salvation. But this ideal isn't our present reality. And we know that. Just turn on the news. Just stand outside for an hour. You'll probably see something that demonstrates that. We deal with this present world of sin on a daily basis. That brings us to the next point, our present reality. Look at verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. You make level the way of the righteous. Several places in this book already that we've looked at. There'll be several more as we go through it. And we read about this idea that the Lord eliminates obstacles. We've read about him flattening hills and making making straight the crooked paths. He destroys every obstacle that stands in the way of his sovereign reign. There's a couple of places that we've looked at that he even made a highway in the wilderness, this long straight path with no bends and no no hills, the easiest possible method of transportation. This highway that he does. Isaiah knows that this is the way of the Lord to make level the paths of the righteous that we would walk in them. Yet, he looks around him and he sees that this isn't always the case. It isn't that the Lord hasn't accomplished his purposes or that he's failed in doing that, but the Lord somehow tried to make level paths for the righteous and failed and quit or anything like that. His purposes have a particular timing. It doesn't always line up with the way that we think things should go. And you see that tension beginning to build there in verse 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. We wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the earth learn righteousness. This is a great picture, especially for parents here. I mean, we sometimes think that our judgments are uh, creating the opposite kind of effect. But when the judgments of the Lord are present, what does the world learn? Righteousness. The judgment of the Lord leads to repentance of the lost. We want to see that. We want to see His judgments come so that people will see Him and repent, fall on their faces, and bow to Him in worship. That isn't always what happens, though. And we know that. He continues in verses 10 through 15. The same kind of idea. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. Isaiah knows this. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see the zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. They want, he wants this for the people. Those other gods. He says, look at this. Those other gods... That in verse 13, O Lord our God, the other lords or the other gods besides you that have ruled over us, but your name alone 
we bring remembrance. See, look look how we've responded to your works, O Lord. We've done the things that you've told us to do. Verse 15, you have increased our nation. You have made us great. You have brought glory to your name. And then there becomes this distinct change in the text. Lord, they don't love you. They don't respond to your things, but we do. We see what you've done and we love you for it. And look what happens. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so we were because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. You get this comparison here. We love you, yet you have not brought us deliverance. Comparison is to a pregnant woman who awaits the birth of a child who must endure this pain, this tremendous pain, to experience the joy of having a child. It's a very vivid picture. Many of you in here have experienced this firsthand. As Christians, this is the life that we live. We experience the pain of life. We await the final redemption when there's no more pain, when there's no more sin, our own sin namely, when there's no more death. We await this time when redemption will finally be concluded. We long for it. We long for justice for the poor, for the oppressed, for the unborn. We're desperate to see the name of Jesus Christ be praised. We no longer be mocked, but to be lifted up. Yet injustice continues. Mocking has grown to a fever pitch. We heard from our brother this morning that Christians are being driven out of a country because they're Christians. Rather than the joy at the end of the pain that you experience because of that childbirth, we feel what Isaiah is saying here in verse 18. What is he giving birth to? The wind. Nothing. There's no deliverance. We have accomplished no deliverance, is what Isaiah says. I think we all feel this. Wouldn't it be easier to just be completely unhinged in your own selfishness, your desire for wealth and possessions and pleasure? It'd be so much easier than wanting the things of the Lord and not seeing them come to pass. We have to admit it, the hedonistic lifestyle has some allure. No commitments, no guilt or shame, just nonstop selfishness and pleasure. It's the nature of the flesh that we all wrestle with. We all see that, retain that part of us that wants to sin and indulge and continues to tempt us with this unholy living. I think one of the most vivid pictures of this is in Psalm 73, if you'll turn there with me. The writer really wants the promises of God. And he wants to see them come. And he wants to, to see the way that we ought to live be a norm. Yet he looks around them, and, and this is hard. Psalm 73. I think Psalm 74 is actually very good for this too, but we have a very short time together. I encourage you to look at that one on your own. I'm going to read the first 15 verses here of Psalm 73. And hear, hear this tension that the writer gives us. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
Sounds like just what Isaiah was saying. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You get that tension. He he sees what they're doing and he's like, why am I even trying? They prosper. I'm struggling and I'm trying to do good. Many times I've been thankful for these words that have been written thousands of years ago. And I'm not thankful that the reader felt those things. I'm just thankful that I'm not the only one that does. How often have you wanted the wicked to get their justice? All the time. How often have you wanted to see right prevail and wrong lose? A lot. All the time. So many times though, it seems like just the opposite is occurring. The leadership in our country is corrupt from top to bottom. Very few exceptions. Seems like no end in sight. It seems only to be getting worse actually. It seems that the only way to have a prosperous church is to act as if you aren't a church at all. Maybe people will show up. The most successful businessmen and women are those who are the most corrupt. They lie and they cheat. They steal more than the guy that's trying to be honest. Even in my own profession, I see this. You can just make, you can make the same money as me. I'm a teacher that tries hard and works hard and works every day and there are others that just come to school and sleep. And they get paid the same as I do. Why do I even try? Though we feel this way, we don't hope in a present redemption, brothers and sisters. Though we do get that from time to time in our own lives, we do see bits and pieces of that, this side of heaven. We see that. We see the kingdom of God coming. And we see the church increasing in its influence. And we've heard stories of this today where... These people who stole from a church have been converted. That's incredible. That's the work of the Lord. That is a picture of heaven. But we await a much greater day. The day that will signify the final redemption of God's people and the judgment of the wicked. We await that day. And that brings me to the last point, the redemption promise. Back in Isaiah 26. They want to keep your finger in Psalm 73. We'll finish that guy's story too. Isaiah 26:19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. 
You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. This is the promise that we have in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Your dead shall live. The resurrection of Christ was just the beginning. He is called the first fruits of the resurrection for a reason, because there will be other fruits of that resurrection. In Him, all the dead will rise to a new life, all those in Him. It started in our own hearts. What were we called before Jesus? We were called dead in our trespasses. What are we called now? Alive in Christ Jesus. A new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But in the end, those last days, we await the redemption of our bodies. And they will be risen again. 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there with me if you want to. If you want to know about the resurrection, memorize that chapter. It's one of the most important in the Bible. And I'll just read the last few verses here. Or some of the last verses. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And this perishable body must put on the imperishable, for this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Hopefully you remember from last week when we read Isaiah 25, what was removed at that feast, the veil of death. What did the Lord do to it? He consumed it. He swallowed it up. Where do you think Paul got that from? He read Isaiah. What do you think Isaiah looked forward to? That thing that Paul's talking about. These things being true, we no longer need to worry then about the pangs of this life because they hold no real power over us. When we really grab a hold of this message, the world becomes a very different place for us as believers. It can't have power over you because we see the world in a completely different light. When I wrote, when I was writing this, it reminded me of a, of a hymn that's very familiar to all of us, and I'll read these, this stanza of it. He says, His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace. When we are looking upon Him, what happens to the things of this earth? They go away. They grow strangely dim. And not only that, but we will see the judgment of the world more clearly. We saw that at the very end, verse 20 through 27, 1. Come, my people, into your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. 
For behold, the Lord is coming out of this place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth shall disclose the blood shed upon it and will no more cover its slain. In that day, the day the Lord is doing that, with His hand the great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Here, I think Leviathan represents our mortal enemies, of course, sin and death, but then obviously could reflect our earthly enemy as well, Satan, who will be punished in that last day as well. Either way, they all stand defeated in the presence of the Lord. Go back to Psalm 73 with me because I want, I want us to finish this off. Psalm 73, starting at verse 16. So he goes through this idea and he, he looks around and he, he, he feels bad for what's going on for him. Verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was wearisome. It was a hard thing for me to understand until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them to fall in ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Wish we had more time to spend in Psalm 73. It's incredible. But you see this turnaround here. And when did he have this turnaround? Did he gaze upon the world and try to figure out the world and its solutions? No. He had this turnaround when he went into the sanctuary of God. And then he was able to discern therein. That's when he, st- when he started to trust in the Lord. He saw therein. And notice this act of repentance that the psalmist goes through. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. But then he goes on and says, But whom whom have I in heaven but you? You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oftentimes, we'll find ourselves gazing into that room, that in-school suspension room or whatever it is for you, thinking that it's paradise. It's not. When you do that, just turn your eyes upon Jesus. He is paradise. He is the hope that we have. In conclusion, don't lose heart. The world around us is faltering and failing. We, brothers and sisters, must be a light to the world rather than peering into the dark world looking for something good. There's nothing good there. Look upon Jesus instead. 
turned to him. He consumed death by raising from the dead himself. And we are risen with him to a new life today. And we look forward to that final redemption when we will be with him forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we need help with this because we oftentimes do see the darkness of this world as light. And we struggle because we see the temptation of this world as a good thing. And it's not. Lord, help us to more and more enter into your sanctuary that we might discern their end. And more importantly, that we might discern your goodness and your mercy and your grace and how much you love us that we would trust in this promise that you have for us this future city whose walls are salvation we pray this in the name of jesus christ our lord amen